This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, I hit the record button. I see the red blinky thing. We're on. This is the Permaculture Smackdown. <laughs> and uh, so far, uh, three people, three of the Patreon uh, supporters are here, and we're going to record, and, and you guys uh, bring out those tough questions, those ugly, dirty things. Let's let's tackle the big stuff. I keep seeing permaculture people uh, posting stuff on the internet, and they're really taking on the easy stuff. And so SmackDown, I think, I think that the idea is, is we're going to take on the tougher stuff. And um, so for those of you that are watching this on the YouTubes, um, you can see this image of me. It, it just arrived uh, uh, this morning. Um, so we're we're getting we're gearing up for the next Kickstarter. It's going to be for the skip book, and um, we have lined up uh, who's going to make the video, and they're animators. And so <laughs> this is what they sent as the as their first frame of the animation. Um, <laughs> I I don't know I I thought it was kind of fun, so I'm sharing it starting there, but. I also uh, this morning recorded the script, but it was a draft of the script. So, so th- in this thread that we're looking at here, um, the script is is up for discussion. But boy, we've been working on it for weeks, and uh, it's now down to two minutes and thirty nine seconds. So I I think we're good to go. Um, I would uh, I would read it into the podcast uh, YouTube thing now, but. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that's the final script. I don't know if any of you have even seen it. Nobody has seen it. Yeah, I, I was reading through that thread where you guys were getting suggestions and rewriting it on the first post. There's some good ideas in there. Okay. Um, we're going to – I'm going to answer – So I, uh, before we started recording, it sounds like Opalyn has a question, and then Katie has at least one. So, uh, Opalyn, what do you got for me? Hey, Paul. Uh, thanks for doing this. It's really exciting to have some of your time. Um, <laughs> my question is about Pep and Skip and what badges are going through rewrite. So, you know, if we have 9 out of 10 or 13 out of 14 done, we should get that 14th one done now before <laughs> you post the, the rewrite. So what, where are the big revisions happening? Oh boy, um, I I know that the way that we're doing natural medicine has had a major upgrade, and so the sand badge is pretty similar to the way it's been, and it's like you're going to uh, kind of create your own little apothecary. Cool. I, I can also say that for natural medicine, we have eliminated the journal. Um, and I'm sure there's going to be people that are going to be upset about that, but uh, that had to do because we 
all the other badges, people were saying, we've got to have documentation and stuff. And it's, and we we said, no, 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 no. And so the last bit of documentation was left in um, natural medicine. And the reason for the journal was because you needed to track the efficacy of the herbs that you're either uh, wild harvesting or growing in your garden. And um, instead, we shifted over to where the only herbs we work with are really gentle. So if your efficacy is way off, no one's going to get sick. Um, and uh, so we eliminated the journal. I'm sure there's going to be pushback on that. But, um, boy, we had a lot of long debates about that. And I kind of felt like the journal was leading to a bunch of other issues. Um, and, and on top of that, there was getting to be a massive amount of other things people wanted to document um, in natural medicine, which makes sense. Um, but the straw, wood, and iron badges are are really amazing. They they go in a really different direction, and um, we've invented uh, the idea of Aunt Natty being Natty for natural medicine. Um, and what? Aunt Natty would do. So, so basically, there's the, this massive world of conventional medicine. There's this massive world of naturopathic medicine, and um, and we don't want anybody coming after us, telling us that we can't, whatever, whatever, whatever. But we found with Aunt Natty this enormous area that we can do, and that is like. For things like uh, over-the-counter stuff, um, as well as, you know, the, the things that you wildcraft, as well as when your doctor sends you home and says, drink plenty of water, <laughs> Aunt Natty's there saying, drink plenty of water. So we're kind of working in this space. So I kind of feel like this is this was an, uh, an enormous leap forward. So... So there are some big changes coming in natural medicine, but we are about to wrap up all of PEP, and then we're going to have a powerfully strong focus on PEA. Um, and I know that we have nailed down at least two badges in PEA, maybe even three, but we're making some strong forward velocity in PEA. But... Um, Paul, I know what does, that the, what does PEA stand for? Uh, uh, permaculture experience for anyone, or some people call it permaculture experience for apartment dwellers. And so oh, the, okay. the focus is, is that it's for anybody living in an apartment anywhere in the world. So that's another one. Permaculture experience anywhere. So PEP is going to be a permaculture experience according to Paul. So... A lot of people are already frustrated that it's like uh, like build a hugo culture, and and then some people are like, well, I live in an apartment, I can't. There's uh, my my landlord would get so weird if I built a seven foot tall hugo culture in my living room, and uh, just put it in the tub. <laughs> there you go. I, 
Where were you when we had this conversation earlier? Just build it in the tub. You can take it out after you take your picture. We don't care. <laughs> Good <That's> point. Right. <laughs> Drainage is built right in. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, people keep calling you a dirty hippie anyway. Why not? <laughs> so, um, all of the aspects are currently published out at Permies uh, in the skip category. Um and the only ones that are not at 100% right now are natural medicine and textiles and nest. And, and I sure hope somebody other than me finishes nest. Because <laughs> we've all, because I think nest is done, like nest has just one badge left to do. And I think we're all putting it off to last. And, uh, and, and so anyway, I have a... I know that I have only one badge left to do in Nest, and now I'm hearing that it's going to change. So instead of waiting till the spring and warmer weather and nicer um, environment to do a load of laundry, I'm going to do that soon. I know, I know that we made some changes in that, I, like, we were taking it on a couple of weeks back. And um, I know I took out the BB about something about, like, doing 10 loads of laundry. And I'm kind of thinking, like, there's no Otis factor here that I can I can see. Um, but it does seem like we came up with some much better stuff. I think we're talking about the straw badge in this. Do we? I don't think we even have. I'm, I'm not sure. I'd, I'd have to go look it up. Did we... Do we have a wood or iron level for nest? I'm not sure if that's in the plans or not. All right. You're asking me what's going to change, and I know those three aspects still have work to do. And I know that you have been uh, neck deep in the stuff with textiles, and I know I met with Raven earlier today to go over textiles, and... um we made a lot of changes in textiles because Raven kind of wants to lump the um, the upholstery stuff in with uh, like like weaving a cane seat for a chair and uh, and she had oh and then she also felt like mattresses and pillows should also go in upholstery so um, I moved all of the weaving a cane uh, 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 seat for a chair into weaving and um, all the all the mattresses and pillows went into a new section for bedding and then only things that involve fabric mounted on wood goes into upholstery so um, so I made that big change did you guys see that today yeah, we had, um, so you and Raven met, and then I met with Raven and Nicole and Mike, and we had a almost two-hour long conversation, and then I saw the email for this, and so I jumped over here. Um, <laughs> and so we talked for almost two hours. Um, we talked a little bit about the leash. Um, I always really appreciated hearing about how the straw badge level is going to change a bunch, um, and I am down to like five points or less in completing the textile straw badge. So, again, I need to 
finish out those points before the the badge page changes. And I think you have at least 60 BBs right now, right? I have 79 straw BBs. No, excuse me, sand-level BBs. Okay, okay. So you must be super close to getting PEP1 certified. I, I would think so, but it doesn't feel like it. Like, I have three <laughs> sand badges, and then I have, like, six more that I have one badge bit left to do. Um but I was looking at it, and it's possible that I would have, like, 18 to 21 sand-level badges by the end of the summer events this year. Okay. Well, you only need... So, 16. Uh, 16. Yeah. And then you're PEP 1 certified. Right. Right. Okay. And it seems like I, when we kind of have looked in the past and did some quickie math, that it was about... 80, but um, I think I think Mike, in order to get PEP1 certified, he was pushing 100, but it turned out that when he did get PEP1 certified, he was also halfway along to getting PEP2 certified. Yeah, so I have over 125 um, badge bits that I've completed, but quite a few of them are straw. Okay, all right, um, all right. Now, when you're doing this, are you are you thinking like, oh, I want to get PEP1 certified, or are you thinking I want to get the iron badge in textiles? Um, <laughs> based on conversations I've heard, I've it's it's unlikely that I want to get the iron badge in textiles. Um, for a lot of different reasons. Um. But my first goal was to get my textile uh, sand badge, which I did, and to get a badge bit in every aspect, which I'm one short. So um, I do not have a badge bit in uh, natural building yet. Okay. Um, but then my goal, because I'll have um, either a lot of sand badges or a lot of sand badges almost finished. Um, I'm sort of shifting my focus to earning all 22 sand badges, like, by the end of the summer slash the end of the year. Okay. All right. Um, I've kind of understood it that, that your interest in textiles is mighty strong. Why, why is it that you do not want to get the iron badge in textiles? Um. A lot of it is that I um, am currently living in the city again, and so don't have access to the plants and the animals that are going to be growing the fibers that are needed to make all of the lovely things that are in the iron and wood textile badge. Um, so how about if you uh, tell people a little bit about what's in the iron badge for textiles? I, th I think it's pretty cool myself. Oh, I think it's awesome. Um, and I can't do that from memory. <laughs> okay. So the iron badge I, requires I have... you to create an entire outfit from seed. Yeah. And so you need to make... Um, like, I think it's pants or a dress, 
and then a shirt, socks, underwear, and there is an option for a bra, um, and a, a coat. Yeah, sweater Ooh. and a coat. Yep. And it's like you got to make that whole thing from seed. Yep. And now you could do it in such a way that you plant animal feed, and then you have animals, and then the animals end up being some of this, like wool. But there's also a path where it's kind of like um, uh, you could do something that's a little bit more vegan. So you could uh, uh, grow flax and then do things in linen. Um, but there's a – and we – I remember we had a two-hour-long discussion about how a vegan makes a coat. And uh, and so that's in there, too. So that's that's one of the things to get the iron badge. Right. The, uh, the next thing is, is that you got to make a couch. Mm-hmm. And another one is, is that you need to do either a large teepee or tent. Something, and there's a couple of other things in that realm, but but that's fabric arts. That's, that's yep. textiles, is to make something big, really big, and um, outdoors. Um, and that's, that's like that. And there's a there's a few other things, but those are the those are the big ones, and uh, and we tried to we we worked very hard to make it so it would work for vegans as well. Although, I really appreciated the separation of upholstery from housewares, the bedding and towels and things oh. like that. Oh, good that that was done today. Um, I think I think one thing that you've bumped into that I know I've been asked several times about textiles is it's like, well, what if I have this synthetic coat <laughs> or this synthetic thing over here and I'm going to reuse it in something? And we had a long uh, discussion with that as me and Raven and Mike, and in the end we're like, no, nope. No, we're shooting for higher values here, and right. it's, and so I think we likened it to something like, well, why don't I just use a little Roundup when it's really convenient? I won't buy any new. I'll just use the Roundup that was going to be thrown away, and uh, it's it's kind of a little bit of a slippery slope. So we decided to stick to our standards, and uh, I think I think having our standards is like a huge part of what makes all of this really great. Um, and uh, uh, there's some people that would probably find value in something like this without our standards woven into it. But I I am okay with doing it because we are weaving our standards into it. So because everybody is doing this for free. The Kickstarter will be the first time any money has come out, but that's all about, like, the book. Which is not a necessary thing. People can do all of this stuff without the book. Yeah. All right. It isn't the issue that you run into with synthetics is eventually you have to compost that or dispose of it of some way. And if you can't compost it, then you're ultimately putting it in a landfill. Yeah. So even if you have the synthetics, yeah, it, it makes sense to continue using it and reusing it as, as often as possible until it's truly just unusable, but at some point you're, you're going to be burying it or burning it. 
So we kind of felt like the non-vegans, when they make a coat, they'll probably either do wool or fur. And then if a vegan makes a coat, well, it's like, what do, what do the vegans use now? Well, they use almost exclusively synthetics. We need but to convince them to use roadkill. I mean, the animal's dead already, right? So just make a hide coat out of that. I think I think <laughs> you might be laughing, but actually the, the values of a lot of vegans are okay with that. And it, it's it's like, I... I just, I, uh, I, I hope Fred doesn't get too annoyed, but I ask him questions about his vegan values all the time. And I discovered a fascinating thing is that if he were to come across a beehive, which has no bees in it, they've all left for whatever reason, and there's still honey in there, then he would eat that honey. And that would be like the only instance that he would eat honey. Um, but, okay, the, the thing is, is that we want to improve the values of the vegans. So we want to respect their values. And, yes, it's true, some of them will be, and if they are, and they want to make a leather coat or a wool coat or something from an animal that has is roadkill or something or some other way meets their values, that's fine. But the number one way for a vegan to make a coat is by um, tacking in older garments. It's like you'll have a bunch of other worn-out clothes, and they kind of make like eight layers in the middle of your coat. And so they're going to be things like cotton and linen and, and other um vegetable, you know, vegan-based materials. And uh, they don't insulate particularly well, but they'll insulate well enough. And um, uh, so then if you've got an old garment that's worn out, such as what you're talking about, um, you could throw it into the compost pile or you could mash it into a future coat. You know, it's, it's kind of falling apart and old and disintegrating, but, you know, it could still do a round as a coat. Opalin, do you have anything else for me along those lines? I think that's an awesome update. Thank you. All right. Katie, you're up. Yay. I have two questions that I know about. <laughs> Way to keep your end open there. <laughs> All right. Let's start with number one. Um, okay, number one. Um, this is a question I've been trying to figure out for a while. Hopefully it doesn't have a super easy answer, otherwise it won't make a very good smackdown. But uh, I've been thinking about um, I'm sort of desirous of having a small herd of, of, of variety of animals, and so I want to figure out how to do that in a, in a good way. And thinking about what you said about chicken tractors, if you have a chicken tractor and you leave it a long time in a certain spot, um, they will start out with the chicken candy and eat it all, uh, and then they will eat the chicken so-so vine stuff, and then they will pretty much eat the poison stuff because they're just so hungry. And uh, that is a – I've heard with intensive rotational grazing, that's sort of what I'm hearing from how to control all the stuff that they don't like to eat. Um, because if you do, if you do rotational grazing – 
and uh, and you leave them not very long in each place, each place they will eat, uh, eat all the candy, and then they'll move on. And you'll get a lot of stuff that, like, the candy stuff will be eaten down more, and some of this stuff that they really don't like will start to overgrow. And so I've asked people who have cows, what do you do about these plants that start to take over because they're not getting eaten and they're getting all this sun? Um, and they say, oh, well, sometimes we spray them or sometimes we go and we manually weed whack them all or hand pull them. Um, and I'm wondering what your philosophy is with it, uh, intensive grazing and how to avoid forcing them to sort of eat the toxic things more than they would want to. Well, first of all, <clears throat> most of the things that um, they're going to be eating are going to be things that that grow back even bigger and bushier than before, provided that they get enough rest. So they do a good job of out-competing some of the other things. Now, um, I agree that there are some things, and I think uh, snowberry, also known as buckbush, is a great example. Um, it is something that is mildly toxic to animals, and it does really well in my area um, because it's a nitrogen fixer. So it it can um, it has its own little cheat in that way. Uh, but because it's mildly toxic, it's it's kind of um, ignored by the animals throughout most of the year. But when you when winter comes, it's like oftentimes the only green left. So a lot of the deer eat that in order to survive and of course you know what we want to do is like let's say if we're raising cattle is we want to be able to have um, a, a lot of variety of plants even in the winter available for them and we're not going to want a lot of buck brush so um, I would have to say that if you, Katie, have a thousand acres and it's just you and your family on a thousand acres and you're going to raise cattle, it's going to be hard for you to control the buck brush. On the other hand, if um, you are on a thousand acres and you're sharing the land with other permies, and so every each permie family might have something like 10 acres on on 10 acres it's easier for you to control the buck brush and then it's like but okay you've got this herd of cattle and you're going to need at least 80 acres for this herd of cattle on the other hand if you move your cattle into the next 10 acre paddock that's owned by some other family <clears throat> They will generally derive so much benefit from your cattle moving through their 10 acres that they'll encourage it, that they'll ask for it, that they'll want it. And, and then you'll pulse them through all these little plots and then back to your plot again, <coughs> etc. And then um, uh, there's, there's lots of benefit. And the, the, the gardeners that are located on each 10-acre plot will not do a perfect job, but do a better job of how they select it. I mean, if you are managing a one-acre garden and there's a bunch of buckbrush there and it's rare that anything ever eats it and you know it's toxic, I mean, it's, it's not hard to 
remove it. I mean, you're probably going to remove it just because there's something else that you want to grow right there. And um, uh, and this and this effect is exaggerated even more when you're down to a quarter of an acre. On a quarter of an acre, you will probably have nothing growing there that doesn't have some strong value to you. So, as those people struggle, that there are certain plants that are doing well. Now, now, granted, it's possible to put a bunch of animals in a single paddock and leave them there for years, and they will totally obliterate all the candy. And all that's left is toxic plants, because you didn't do anything to care for that pasture. That is entirely possible. What I'm suggesting is is that if you do a rotational graze, then the things that were grazed actually thrive from the grazing. Now, of course, if if you leave the animals in there long enough and they um, and the animals totally wipe out every speck of that plant, that's a disaster. Have I painted a, a picture for you? I think so. I, I think in this situation where you, let's say it's your family and you've got the 10 acres and you're rotating them around because you've only got like four of them and, um, and they're, they, and they eat the stuff, the candy, but they don't eat it all the way, so it's going to come back beautiful. But they don't eat a lot of other stuff, stuff that you right. don't particularly find useful, stuff that's a little bit toxic. Then uh, you can come in and you can say, well, I'm not going to get it all today, but I am going to go out and I'm going to trim back heavily a lot of them. And I may be going to replace some of them with some fruit trees that I'm going to protect from the cows for a little while. And eventually... Um, me or the, if I have friends who have 10 acres to run through, that sounds fantastic. That sounds like something to shoot for. Um, but if I didn't have that, I could still sort of over time come and curate the, the 10-ish acres and, and just sort of manually take care of it um, over time. Does that think, seem like a reasonable solution to that situation? I think it's not even so much that it's like, oh, this plant here isn't doing me any good, so I'm going to take it out. There could be some of that. But I think what's more likely is kind of what you said, like, hey, I'm going to plant, I want to plant, uh, I I went to the local nursery and I picked up a dozen new trees that sounded like fun. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out onto my acres and I'm going to pick a spot. And, uh, And it's like, here's some kind of shrub. I don't know what it does, but it isn't a cool tree from the nursery. So, guess what, shrub? Today's your last day. And it's like, <laughs> shrubectomy happens. And uh, uh, so now there's fewer of these shrubs. And now uh, in goes this tree. And you're going to baby this tree in this spot. And if the shrub comes back and, and, you, and you don't like this shrub, you don't know this shrub, I don't know you. And it's like, uh, you know, it's gone. You, you, just because you're looking out for the tree, not because you're hating on the shrub. So you know, I actually got to see an exact example of what you're talking about. In um, southern Utah, there was a couple. They had a little permaculture farm. They called it Heartwater Farm. Mm-hmm. And this was near uh, Bryce National Monument Park, the exact name. But um, they had a creek that 
came all the way from there and it would feed in and, and they were irrigating there. And they have, they had 10 acres and half of that they raised cattle and they had, um, I think 12 plots on those five acres that were wired. They just had like a single strand of electric fence. And every one to two days he would open up, uh, that wire and all the cattle would rush into the new, uh, you know, plot that they could get to because the grass was like a foot tall and start munching away. And then he would close that lineup. And every one to two days, you know, he would take a look and see what, uh, you know, how much of the grass was eaten down and would just continue to rotate them. And so that grass would then get to rest for three weeks before the, the cattle were back. And he had said that it started off with mostly you know, low quality weed stuff that the cattle didn't really like. And so he was purchasing like red clover seed and sowing that. Um, the, the cattle were only on there for, for one season, right? So he was leasing that land and doing the work for the owner. And um, they would keep one of those cows at the end of the year to butcher. And so then in the fall, it was... You know, there were no more cattle on there. Then he would sow the seeds to get it to to grow. And so over time, it was uh, out competing the the less desirable plants. But then there were still some like you consider medicinal plants, right? That are mildly toxic. But when the cattle had some kind of you know stomach issue, they knew oh this is the plant to munch on to solve that. So it was like a totally organic, no fertilizer or sprays or anything like that um, on that property and seemed to work really well. I So basically, you're validating the thing that I said a moment ago, which is that it's bizarre how the things they like thrive on being munched on. Absolutely. And then that ends up being... What what starts to overwhelm and push back the other stuff. Now, of course, if a person hasn't done this, I could totally understand that they're like logically the stuff they don't like will start to take over. And it's like generally that's not the case, but it can be the case depending on stuff. I guess... The point I'm trying to make is that you don't have an excess of toxic, toxic plants. You have a deficiency in permaculture gardeners. <laughs> so, like, if you're, if you're looking at a plot and you're like, oh, man, I'm running these cattle through here and all, you know, whatever, and, uh, oh, I'm just getting overwhelmed in all of this uh the snowberry, it's just everywhere. It's out of control. This whole thing, uh, which is in my imagination entirely, it really sucks. And it's kind of like if you had more gardeners per acre, all of the undesirable stuff would go away. I, I remember having this uh, guy, when I very first bought the lab, came up with me, he's looking at it, and... And he's a forester. And whenever he goes out to manage forest, and he manages like, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres, and he sees knapweed, he sprays it. Even though his values are very 
permaculture aligned. He just doesn't know of a better way. And so he asked me, because we saw some knapweed, and first of all, I, I only wanted to buy land that had knapweed on it. I wanted land that was covered in weeds. Because if it's covered in weeds... Because you know there aren't herbicides, right? That's right. That's right. And so he saw the a patch of knapweed, and he said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, wherever I see a patch of knapweed, my thinking is, that's where I want to put a permaculture gardener. Because they're going to, that's the first thing they're going to do is rip out all the knapweed. And, you know, then they're going to start going to garden. If knapweed tries to come back, they'll pluck that out too. Knapweed ain't doing anybody any good. Same thing goes with the snowberry. They're going to pluck it out because it's like, I got something else I'm going to do there. And I don't know who you are. Well, I think most of the people, most permaculture gardeners, when they encounter snowberry, they're either going to know what it is and pluck it out. Some of them might leave the snowberry for a little while in a particular spot. Like, like we had a bunch of snowberry growing on our steep cultures here. And it's like, well, it is a nitrogen fixer. And it is a shrub. And so it's putting its roots deep into the culture and giving it structural integrity and putting nitrogen into this nitrogen-deficient soil. And then last year we went through and clipped them all and, and threw the tops down as chop and drop, mulch. So there was a little bit of we We were like, there it is. Look at it. Look at it. There it is. Look. But I think most permaculture gardeners are going to be like, I'm going to grow a garden right here. And uh, these shrubs are in my way. Off you go, shrubs. Goodbye. And, and it's like, they're gone. No problems. So at the same time, now you've got, like, your permi has grown all these gardens. And then you're going to say, I want to run my cattle through there tomorrow. And it's like, no problem. We're going to go and harvest what we want right now. So that way when your cattle come through, they're not eating the stuff that we want. And uh, boom, the, 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 cattle, the cattle come through, they leave, and then everything grows so awesome. Yay. All right. Katie, did we answer your question sufficiently? Yes, it was great. Next question. Next question. This might be a shorter question. I have a question about rocket mass heaters, rocket mass uh, stove parts, and sort of it's physics-y a little bit. If you were to take a round, let's say that you carved a round wooden ball, just a little ball out of wood, and you put it in the rocket mass heater instead of a stick-shaped thing, would it still work, or does the rocket mass heater need to have the elongated shape to be burning? Wow. Wow. That is that is a, an actually a really great question. I mean, first, it'll still work. Um I I mean the the, the only thing is is it's like with a ball shape, then a lot of the air that's coming down the wood feed um is going to go directly into the um burn tunnel and riser instead of like where the parts of the ball are burning. Whereas when we have a, a collection of sticks sitting in the wood feed, the air is pulled down between all of the sticks, and then it has to work its way towards 
the burn tunnel through the sticks. So there's lots of air passing by where the literal burning happens. Um, I'm going, I'm going to bet. So like Vegas is holding bets on your experiment. I'm going to bet it burns just fine. Um, so like you get the fire going and then you drop your sphere in there, your wooden sphere. And it's like, does it burn? I'm going to say yes. Mostly because there have been times I've dropped a block of wood in there at the bottom and kind of thought, man, I don't know if that's going to burn right because the air is going to just whip right past it. But nope, it burned just fine. did good. So if for some reason you had yourself a large pile of marble-shaped wooden things, you could perhaps use them in your rocket mass heater. <laughs> okay, marble-shaped. So now... I mean, it sounds more like we're getting closer to like a pellet stove kind of scenario. Is that is that about right? <laughs> so, um, if there, because I was thinking of a sphere, it's like you know five inches in diameter, but now you're talking about something closer to one inch in diameter. Is that? I did right? want to know both, right? I'm I'm sort of asking them sequentially. Yes. Oh, I see. Okay, two part question here. Um. I think it would still burn, but again, I would be a little concerned about air being able to get down to the lower layers. Because if you poured a whole bunch in, um, now I guess that like some of them are going to drift into the burn tunnel because they're, you know, like a bunch of marbles. They're going to kind of slop in there and then they're going to burn easy. And then when they burn off, then I think other marbles are going to try and float in there, too. But with uh, with marbles all the way to the top of the wood feed, that's really limiting the amount of air that can get into the system. Ha. Huh. Ha. Huh. I'm I'm going to say that I'm a little nervous about the lack of air getting in there. And, like, is it going to be a clean burn? Because in order to be a rocket mass heater, it has to have a clean burn. Like, you've got you to see that there is no smoke coming out of the chimney. Um, and with that scenario, I wonder... If you filled it with marbles all the way to the top of the wood feed, I wonder if it would limit the air so much that you would start to see smoke coming out of the chimney. You could maybe limit the upper, like maybe is a couple inches of marbles, but it's not entirely filled with marbles so that there was air. But I wonder if they would... If they would sort of not catch on fire, like the next ones wouldn't be close enough to the previous ones, such that they wouldn't be like if let's say you had a piece of wood that was all the way at the back, like towards you, I guess. If you're standing, mm. yeah, if you, as if you were feeding it, like maybe they wouldn't catch. They would just like the front ones would, and then it would sort of die out. I'm and wouldn't you also say, have an issue where, as because those top marbles would certainly be burning first that as they burn down and you get sort of a, a little layer of ash, that would also, you know, prevent those lower marbles from getting enough air and heat to properly combust, that you'd end up with, like, unburnt 
uh, marbles at the bottom, or at the, it would take a long time, and then they just wouldn't burn, you know, hot enough. If you do have an excess of ash, they can suffocate a fire. Um, but assuming that you started this fire by scooping out, you know, most of the ash, not all, but most, like more than half of it, and then doing it, I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a, a wild ass guess. And <clears throat> it's based on having watched a lot of fires burn and rocket mass heaters. And also throwing in a pile of bits of wood, including like even some wood chip like stuff and this and that, whatever we've got. Because a lot of, I, I kind of like to, to get all the little floor sweepings from when you've been chopping wood kind of a thing and, and burn those too. And so from watching all of that stuff burn, I'm going to say it will burn. Your marbles at the bottom will burn entirely. I mean... Now, granted, I'm going to guess that you're not going to run this fire more than a couple of hours, maybe three hours. Um, and uh, so you're not going to build up so much ash that Mark's getting nervous. Um, <clears throat> so I, I kind of feel like it'll burn. It'll burn completely. It won't be a problem. I mean, I've, I've also seen stuff where I've, I've had a, uh, some coals near the burn tunnel and no coals in the bottom of the wood feed and I'll throw a bunch of wood in there and then I'll come back 10 minutes later and it's all burning just great. I mean, the wood at the, that's near the burn tunnel catches first and it starts to burn and then the, the air is moving down and hitting all those flames and those flames kind of work their way back and they burn everything. So... I'm going to speculate it'll burn fine. Great. All right. And so, I th are there any more parts to your question? Did we answer it completely? I think you did. Okay. Okay. Um, this podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.